1919, a bomb went off in California's wine industry, the 18th Amendment, prohibition. Suddenly, the production, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages was illegal for all but a handful of California wineries. This was the end. And for one department at the University of California, it meant an existential crisis. In the late 1800s, in order to give California's fledgling wine industry a boost, UC had established the Department of Viticulture to study grape growing. Like California's wineries, the department's future looked bleak. But there was a strange loophole in the prohibition law, one that kept both California's vineyards and the viticulture department relevant. The manufacture and sale of alcohol was illegal, but drinking it wasn't. And the law allowed individuals to make up to 200 gallons of wine per year for personal consumption. While commercial wineries across America closed, grape production on private farms in California exploded, including on university property. You're listening to One Bold Idea, a celebration of the 150-year history of the University of California. In this episode, we present the story of the university's effort to revolutionize the California wine industry. We have the biggest acreage we've ever had in 1927. Albert Winkler was a professor in UC's Fruit Products Division. He's heard here in an oral history interview recorded in 1972. We were shipping grapes to the east where they were made into wine in the bathrooms and basements and everywhere. And the bootleggers, of course, were beginning to operate. So for a few years right there after World War I, everything was booming. But the boom in production revealed a weakness. So there were certain varieties that would ship, and our best quality grapes won't ship. So there was a shift in, in, in acreage from the good varieties to what we might call mass production wine varieties. Those that would carry from California to New York and still be in, in reasonably good condition. By the time of Prohibition's repeal in 1933, the majority of the state's grape growers had ripped out their quality vines in favor of thick-skinned varieties that traveled better but made inferior wine. Soon, Winkler was tasked with rebuilding the UC grape program. His first hire was a young plant biologist named Maynard Amarine. The wine industry was in tatters, but the Department of Viticulture, led by Amarine, went on to change the industry forever. Public universities like UC were originally founded primarily to advance the study of farming. In 1862, President Abraham Lincoln signed the Marl Act, which established the first public land-grant universities. Their charge? to educate Americans in the fields of engineering and agriculture. In 1905, UC established the University Farm in Davis to advance agricultural research. Those ag scientists recognized early on that California, with its diverse terrain and climate, had the potential to develop a world-class wine industry. But they faced a tough challenge. It was one thing to develop innovations in the lab, another to convince winemakers to adopt them. Many farmers and winemakers were suspicious of scientific agriculture. They called it book farming. But after the repeal of Prohibition, 
the UC scientists were armed with one salient fact. California wines were selling, but they were bad. Really bad. The university took another look at the industry, as they had in 1880, and they saw nothing but chaos. That's Maynard Amerine from an archived UC Davis lecture on the history of winemaking. About 20% of the wines made in 1933 had spoiled. As he told his students, the farmers had poor equipment and poor grapes, and they lacked experience. You'd lost the expertise because any good winemaker went someplace where it was still legal to make wine. Linda Bisson is a retired professor from UC Davis's Department of Viticulture and Enology. The Enology part of the name, which means the study of wines, was added in later years. This was a quote from Maynard Henry that I loved. Uh, he would say that, that many people uh, uh, state that wine is proof that God loves us. And he would say, God doesn't want us to have wine. God wants us to have vinegar. And if you don't know how to manage the wine, you'll wind up with vinegar. According to Amarine, much of the wine being sold around the country as California wine was, in fact, vinegar. Basically sloppily made wine spoiled by bacteria. The reputation of California wine was in the gutter. Amarine and his colleagues had a message for winemakers. You can't make a silk purse out of a pig's ear, and uh, that you had to plant better varieties of grapes if you're going to make better wines. And if you want to make good wine, you need science. First things first, Winkler and Amarine needed data to back up their claim. Their efforts focused on an experimental vineyard and winery at the Davis Farm. They went to Europe to learn from the masters there. Back home, they traveled around the state, collecting grapes to experiment with. They made hundreds of batches of wine at the Davis Winery to figure out which grape varieties and which regions were best for making quality products. At the time, there was no standard, objective method for measuring wine quality. So Amarine made one, a 20-point scorecard for grading their experiments. The two scientists, Winkler and Amarine, had to become expert wine tasters in a hurry. Amarine and I tasted 20 wines in the forenoon, 20 wines in the afternoon. I got uh, fairly good, but uh, I was never equal to Amarine. Using their data, they divided the state into five climatic wine-growing regions. And they began publishing articles about the effects of climate on wine quality with the hope that growers would begin replacing poor quality grapes with good ones that would grow well in their region. Amarine and his colleagues held wine technology conferences to help educate people in growing grapes and fermenting wine. The university offered one of the world's first degrees for aspiring winemakers. But the wine industry's woes weren't over. In the 1930s, the Great Depression crushed the wine market. The business was not, uh, not a lucrative business. It was a very difficult business. Robert Mondavi, heard here in a 1982 interview, was one of California's premier winemakers. The American public didn't drink wines. The only people that drank wines were the immigrants that came over from the Mediterranean area around there that came here, and then they would make their own wine. For growers and vintners, pulling up old vines and planting new ones cost money. And with business so poor, most didn't have the cash. So change came slowly. Maynard Amarine worked for decades, testing out varieties in the experimental vineyards at Davis. He nearly gave up. I labored in that vineyard for a long time, for, from 1935 
to about 1964, thinking that I was a prophet lost in his own country. Nobody was planning good varieties. The university was recommending good varieties, but nobody was planning good varieties. Then something happened in the mid-1960s. By then, Amarine and his colleagues had published a number of seminal books on winemaking. The knowledge was spreading, and growers finally began following the recommendations of UC researchers, planting quality grapes. And in the 60s, for all practical purposes, the poor wines disappeared, and we began to make sound wine, big wines, rich wines, and the American people began to drink. And then from 1968 on, we had what I call the wine revolution, because sales of wine quadrupled in, in the next 15 years. This opened up new horizons for the scientists in the viticulture department. They didn't have to be content with mere commercial acceptability anymore. Professor Linda Besson says they could focus their research on what makes a truly exceptional wine. Uh, how do we get to the European level of quality? It was still thought of as a young region in a new region, and a region that was just learning the trade or the craft instead of a region that had perfected it. Amarine believed that perfecting the craft meant winemakers had to become better wine tasters. Sensory evaluation is critical to be able to meaningfully evaluate the sensory properties, the appearance, the smell, the taste, the mouthfeel. Anne Noble is the professor emeritus of enology at UC Davis. At that point, all the words were totally hedonic, elegant, sophisticated, robust, feminine, masculine. It was very, very subjective terminology. Maynard Amarine had worked to hone the language of sensory perception, but Noble took it one step further. She created an aroma wheel that gave students and winemakers concrete language to describe what they smelled in a glass of wine. Both she and, and Maynard had this, this great understanding of the neurobiology of preference. With California winemakers now incorporating science into their methods, it seemed they might be able to give the great European winemakers a run for their money. You know, if we paid attention to sanitation, paid attention to inhibiting the microorganisms that spoil wine, uh, that the wines were actually going to be better. And I think the judgment in Paris showed that. The judgment of Paris, as it's informally known, is considered a major turning point in modern wine history. It was a competition put on by a British wine merchant in 1976. The world saw American wines as inferior, and he thought pitting the upstarts against the French would be entertaining. On the same stage, here's our Chardonnay, here's their Chardonnay. In blind taste tests, the French judges favored California wines in both the red and white categories. It just shocked the world because we were all led to believe by the nose that, you know, French wine was and all the be all and the end all, and we were these upstarts. And all of a sudden, they started recognizing that people were making superb wines in California. Perhaps the only people who weren't surprised were the UC researchers. They knew that if the industry in California treated winemaking as a science, these wines would eventually become world class. Today, California is the world's fourth largest producer of wine after France, Italy, and Spain and the annual retail value of California wines tops $30 billion. 
Linda Bisson believes California wine owes its greatness, in part, to its struggle to overcome obstacles and the scientific reinvention of the industry at Davis. I think it did set the stage for let's be innovative, let's question the methods or the recipes that we're using, and let's try things that maybe aren't commonly used in the industry. And, and I think what we have in California is a tradition of innovation. It's the same spirit that drove the founding of the entire UC system, a belief that by sharing and building on scientific knowledge, we can advance one farm, one field, one idea at a time. Thanks for listening to One Bold Idea. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. I'm Shuka Kalantari. The music you heard in this episode was from Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. The interviews with Winkler, Mondavi, and Amarine were provided by UC Berkeley's Oral History Center and the UC Davis Library. This episode was reported by Kobe McDonald and mixed by Graylin Bashir, with editing from Ben Manila at the UC Berkeley Advanced Media Institute in collaboration with the University of California.